Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you guys. It is good to be here. I am excited to be up here. I love to preach. I love it. And uh, I know Doug made a little crack that you guys should bring a lunch or something. So I brought mine. It's right here. So if I do get a little long, I might pull this out and take a little snack. It's even got my name on it. See, it says Nick so that no one else will take it. This one's mine. Um, man, I am so excited to be here. Let me just, I, I, I'm going to sit here and talk about how I'm excited I am, and I'm going to miss my opportunity to preach. So let me tell you, if you're open to it, and sometimes even if you're not, God will break down every single thing in your life, good or bad, that gets in the way of his will. Let me say that one more time. If you are open to it, and sometimes even if you're not, God will break down everything in your life, good or bad, that gets in the way of his will. And we're going to come back to that. Now, I grew up, when I, was, when I was in high school, I loved English class. Science class, I did not care for that. Math class, I barely went to it, and I received the grades that you get from doing that. But English class, I was there early, and I was there late. I loved it. And I grew up, and I went to college, and I became an English major, and I love it. I love foreshadowing, I love symbolism, I love imagery, I love all of those things. I love letting an author sort of peel back the layers of a story piece by piece while I slowly discover everything that I can. One of my favorite set of books is The Chronicles of Narnia. I love it absolutely. Some people will change the order of the books. Now, if you read them a long time ago, you know that it starts with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is really cool because it sets up all this stuff that as you read later, you find out, oh, that's what the lantern was. Oh, that's who he was. Like, you start to, it peels back. But some people break the rules and put Magician's Nephew first, which gives you all the information in the whole story, and then you read it, and it's just not as exciting. It's so much cooler to let C.S. Lewis kind of just peel it back piece by piece by piece by piece. I love when that happens. Uh, you know, and The Sixth Sense, is another, you know, if you've ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense, this is a spoiler because I'm going to tell you what happens. If you haven't seen it, close your ears and say la 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 la. But one time I was in, when I was in college, uh, I was kind of an obnoxious kid. I'm, I'm still a little bit. The fre- we, were playing, we were going on a soccer trip and the freshmen were all in one bus and the other guys were in the other bus. And they were about to watch, start watching Sixth Sense. And I wanted to get on the freshman bus really quick to get a bottle of water that I left and they wouldn't let me on. So I went around to the driver's side, opened the door, got my bottle. And just as the movie was started, I said... Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. See you later. And you heard, and I just closed the door, and you just heard this collective, why? But they're freshmen, so who cares? Um, I loved it, man. But I do love that. I love connecting one storyline with another in this large narrative. You know, the Bible is the perfect book for me because it does this like every single page. You know, just off, like, so, like, when Jesus starts his ministry, right, he goes and he's baptized by John the Baptist in what river? The Jordan River, right? When Joshua took the Israelites into the promised land to start the entering of the promised land and taking the land, what river did he cross? Right. So when Jesus is in the Jordan River, something crazy happens, right? Like the Holy Spirit comes down in a dove and it's beautiful. We hear the voice of God. When Joseph crosses the river, the Holy Spirit comes, parts the water, and they go across. Just like what baptism is supposed to be. Like we go through the water and we come out new. It's crazy, right? That's just one tiny example that I just thought of. It's totally not in my notes. Did you guys know that sometimes pastors lie a little bit? 
I just did. It's in my notes. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't go through with it. Um, no, but that stuff is all over the Bible. And this story with, with Peter and Tabitha is in a classic. It's a classic example of this. And I'm going to show you what's up. Let's peel this story back. So we start here with Tabitha. Peter is a disciple. And he's been given the keys of the kingdom. He's been called the cornerstone. God, Jesus has really invested a lot in Peter. But one of the things about Peter is he's a very passionate individual. Right? He's very, uh, what's the word, rigid at times. Um, and so with the law, Peter was very, very rigid and strict. And we can see that here in this story. So we're actually going to compare this story to a similar time that Jesus brought somebody back from the dead in Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus goes to a place. He's been called there just like Peter was called to go and bring someone who is sick and heal them. But by the time he gets there, she's already dead. Peter is brought to the same room where this woman is dead and he's going to try to do what he can. And the cool thing about Peter different than Jesus, is Jesus had already kind of done this. Jesus was known for doing crazy things like this. At this point in time, nobody but Jesus had ever brought anybody back from the dead. That was the only guy that had done it. In Acts chapter 9, that's the, nobody had done this yet. But the cool thing is she was already dead, and the people who called Peter knew she was dead, but yet still called him. There was no evidence that Peter could definitely do this, and I also don't think it was just the last-ditch effort. They, it seemed to me, they, when you read the passage, it seems to me they call him with confidence. They call him knowing that he can fix the problem. So, Jesus enters the room in Luke chapter 8, and he has everybody leave the room. All the mourners, he says, you guys got to go. And he keeps with him Peter, James, and John. The same three that he took up on the mountain for the transfiguration keeps with him Peter, James, and John and the parents of the little girl. All right, so Peter walks in the room and having seen this before because he was with Jesus, he tells all the mourners to leave the room. And because she was a lady, she was not a child, there were no parents to stay in the room. So she just, he just says, everybody out. So here we have these two scenes. Peter is in the room with this, with this dead girl named Tabitha. Jesus a few months or possibly a year later, earlier, has the same situation. He's in the room, and he's got this dead girl. Now, Jesus kneels down, takes the hand of the girl, and says, little girl, arise. Little girl gets up. He gives her something to eat. She's alive. Peter kneels down by this girl, does not touch her, and says, Tabitha, arise. Uses the same phrasing and says, Tabitha, arise. She gets up, then he takes her hand. Why is that significant? That is significant because in the law of Moses, you are not allowed to touch a dead person. It is unclean. You can't do that. If you do, you have to go through this whole process of becoming ceremonially clean once more, and Peter knew that. So before he brought her to life, he did not touch her because he knew she was dead, and that's against the rules. So when this girl woke up, she saw Peter, and then she knew she could get up. But when Jesus did it, he had her hand even before she was alive. Straight up broke the rules and didn't care. Straight up broke them. Held her hand, brought her back to life. Maybe the reason he asked everybody to leave is because he knew he was going to do that, and he didn't want to hear any garbage like, whoa, you touched her hand when she was dead. Go take a shower. He just wanted to do what was right. And he knew, and this is probably good advice for all of us, when you bring someone back from the dead, you should probably be holding their hand when you do it. 
That just seems like an obvious rule for resurrection, right? So, this is the beginning. This story is the beginning of Peter's breakdown that God will take him through. This is the, this is the beginning of that story. Now, this is worth mentioning because I'm going to bring it up again later. This is another peeling back a little bit of the story. The setting of this scene is in Joppa. Can anyone remember, and you can shout it out because this is, I'm a youth pastor and I like people to yell things. Does anyone remember an Old Testament prophet that went to Joppa to do something? Hey, Jonathan, you cheated. We talked about this. We're supposed to let, it's just like when we're in youth. You let the kids answer. Somebody else yelled it, so you're off the hook. Your job's on the line and now you're safe. Jonah, Jonah, when he went, when God called him to go preach to Nineveh, he fled to Joppa to get on a boat. Now, we're going to come back to that in a little while. Okay, so Peter goes through this situation, and then he decides, and this is probably also a decent idea, to take a little bit of a vacation. Whenever, this is a good rule of thumb, two rules so far about resurrection. One, hold their hand when you do it. Two, after you do it, you deserve a little bit of a vacation. Because that's a legit thing that you just did. Take a break. All right? You don't need to go straight back to work. If you heal her, if you bring someone back to life on Friday, take Monday off. That's fine. Your boss will understand. So Peter takes a little break. And this is another piece of the story that God is breaking Peter down. He takes him and he goes to stay at this place, this guy's place named Simon. And Simon was a tanner. A tanner is somebody who works with leather. And leather is the skin of dead animals. This is an unclean profession. This is not something that would have made Peter incredibly comfortable. Inside this house, there most likely would have been dead animal skins laying all over the place. Possibly even carcasses of dead animals. Not exactly the place for an incredibly strict adherence to the law of Moses to sleep. Which is probably why, when he needed a quiet time, he went on the roof. Because he probably didn't feel super good about kneeling down to pray next to a dead animal skin. Which, again, I wouldn't either. That's gross. It probably smells bad. So Peter goes up to the roof, and he begins to pray. And while he's doing this, God brings him into this thing. The scripture says he brings him into a sort of trance. And in this trance, weird stuff happens. Weird stuff happens. This, this sheet sort of unrolls in Peter's vision, and on it are all these delicious foods. There was probably bacon on there. There was probably some pork chops, maybe some, some pork brisket. Two of you, some pork tenderloin, just lots and lots of pig stuff. Maybe some lobster, because that's not right. Lobster, crab, like a seafood feast, catfish, fingerlings. If you ever had catfish fingerlings, you're missing out. Have some. They're delicious. All this stuff is just unrolling on the sheet, and Peter is most likely in this trance freaking out, because this is all no-no food. Don't touch that food. Don't look at that food. Don't think of that food. If you even smell the food, you probably need to go through some sort of ceremonially uncleaning shower. It was bad for Peter. And then Jesus, in this vision, says the exact opposite of what Peter would have ever expected him to say. He says, rise and eat. And he does this three times. Three times, Peter has this vision And over and over again, he sees all this delicious food, which to him would have been abhorrent, and God tells him to eat it. And even in the trance, Peter's response is, no way, never, ever have I ever 
eaten anything that is ceremonially unclean. Peter's probably thinking, ah, this is one of those tricks. Jesus is a tricky dude. He does tricky things. This is one of those. I'm not going to eat it. And I'm going to be right. And he's going to give me more presents and stuff like that. But no. He says, never call unclean what I have said is clean. Basically, shut up and eat it. Just do it. I'm telling you to do it. Do it. So three times this happened. Now, in the meantime, 30 miles north, a little place called Caesarea, there's this Roman centurion who the scripture says was an incredibly well-thought-of individual. Everybody loved him, both Jew and Gentile, knew this guy. He was a man who knew the Lord. He was a man who knew the word. He was a good dude. And in this moment, this guy, again, hears the voice of God and says, look, I want you to go down south to this place called Joppa. I want you to get this guy Peter, and I want you to bring him back. He's staying at a leather worker's house. Go there and get him. So the centurion sends his, his interns or whoever he sends. He sends some other people to go do it because he's, he's the boss. You don't do errands if you're the boss. Jonathan. So he sends some people down to Joppa, and right after Peter endures this horrifying vision, he comes down off the roof, and there are these guys. They're here, they're come to pick up Peter, and they enter the house, and they say, hey, Peter, we're here to get you, and Peter's like, normally I would never do this, but I feel like maybe this vision and this thing are somehow connected. So he goes with them. They spend the night, and the next day they go. And when he gets there, the very first thing, and i got to read this to you because it's just classic Peter. Um, the very first thing that Peter says when he gets in the room is this. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit of another, anyone of another nation. That's an awkward way to start a conversation. You guys know I'm not supposed to be here, right? We all get this. That's, that's what Peter's saying. Like, you know this is horribly inappropriate. Right? Okay. But, Jonathan, what, is the, what do you say about the word but? The huge. He's right. <laughs> In Scripture, when you come across that particular conjunction, it probably means something cool is about to happen. It is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit any one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now, why have you sent for me? Again, this is another step that God takes Peter through to break down his completely legitimate adherence to the law. Peter was not being out of line by not wanting to eat unclean food. Peter was not even being out of line by feeling a little confused as to why God would take him to somewhere he's not supposed to be. That's normal. That's how he's supposed to think. That's what the law has taught him. But God is bringing him into a situation that he did not, could not have believed. If before he was brought to Joppa, someone said to him, hey, you know, in a couple days you're going to preach a sermon and a whole bunch of Gentiles are not only going to accept salvation, they're going to start speaking in tongues and the Holy Ghost is going to follow them and crazy stuff's going to happen. He would have said, you're wrong, I'm going fishing. 
Peter likes to fish. But this is the situation. They say to him, he says to them, now why do you want me here? And, and the centurion steps up and he says, I don't know. God told me to bring you. And my guess is it's to hear what you have to say about him. So Peter opens his mouth and the word of God just starts spilling out. And honestly, it's kind of a weak sermon. It's not very long. It's not very filled with lots of flowery language. There's no imagery. There's no metaphors. There's no anything really exciting. But it's the word of God. And when that happens, these Gentiles, it just breaks loose. And this, again, is the first time this happens. This had not happened before. These Gentiles begin speaking in tongues and, and accept the word of God, and they become baptized. And all of a sudden, there's this outbreak of the scriptures, an outbreak of Jesus, an outbreak of salvation among the Gentiles who Peter did not even realize this was for. And then Peter has the great job of going back to Jerusalem and trying to keep his position as a disciple because what he's done to them is a little, it's a little inappropriate. It's not right. But he explains the situation. He tells them what happened. He tells them about the sheet. He tells them about the centurion. He tells them about the Holy Ghost being poured out on these people. And he says, not my fault. I don't know what I'm doing. This isn't me. God did this. Blame him. Peter was stripped of his adherence to the law so that God's will could be accomplished. If you're open to it, and sometimes even if you're not, God will break down everything in your life, good or bad, that gets in the way of his will. Let's peel the the story back just a little bit more. Let's start with our boy Paul. Now, before Peter is called to Joppa, in the same chapter, just a few days before this, Paul, before then called Saul, was sent to Damascus, and he experiences Jesus on the road. He's blinded, and he accepts Jesus for who he was. And he spends some time there and he spends some time teaching in the synagogues and then he goes to Jerusalem and he has to explain himself and they don't believe him. And some other people have to come and speak for him and finally they accept him and so now Saul, or become Paul, is ready. But what's he supposed to do? Well, he is supposed to be the voice of the Gentiles. But at this point, there was no one allowed. You weren't allowed to do that. So the circus, the the the, the, the Sequence of events, Paul receives his salvation, gets his call to the Gentiles. Peter goes and makes it okay to go to the Gentiles. Peter explains it to the disciples. They accept it. Saul starts going. Paul was not that bad of a guy. It's real easy to read the story of of Paul and see that he was present when Stephen was being stoned and that the coats were laid at his feet and he was cool with it. It's easy to think, wow, Paul was an evil dude. But let me explain it to you this way. Paul was brought up under the great high priest of that era by a name named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the wisest high priests that they had at the time. He was super smart. He taught Paul all his life, all about the scriptures and how to understand them and how to follow the law. He knew the law. He knew the scriptures. And like many similarly thinking Jews at the time, he just didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. I don't know. Maybe he never saw him speak. Maybe just everything was hearsay for him. I don't know. But he just never really got it. And so if you're a Jew at the time and you don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, 
then it's probably a good idea to wipe out all of these people telling everyone that he was. Because then when the real Messiah comes, they won't accept him because they think this other dude was him. So Paul's actions really, if you think about them, were not that evil. In fact, they were right within the line of the law of Moses. He was just following the law as he understood it. God broke down Paul's Pharisee-like adherence to the law to accomplish his will. Now, Jonah. Jonah ties into this story in a very interesting way. Jonah was the first prophet ever told to go and speak to non-Jews. To go and preach the word of God to Babylonians, nonetheless. And to this incredibly depraved city, this was the first time this had ever happened. So naturally, Jonah is absolutely not into this. No, he says. He was scared, he was terrified, and honestly, he probably had no idea why God would call him to do this thing, which he knew was against the law. When Peter said to those, those non-Jews when he entered the room that you know what is unlawful for me to even visit with people of another nation, how abhorrent would it have been to Jonah to go to this nation and stand among them and try to explain to them that what they're doing is wrong? A, that's crazy, and B, it's super dangerous. Not just for the people in Nineveh who were probably going to destroy him, he thought, but even his peers and those in, in, in Judah would have thought he was insane. You're not allowed to go there, Jonah, they would have said. His fears were relatively normal. And so he fled to a city named Joppa. And while he was in Joppa, he went on a boat to go to a place called Tarsus. Does anyone know where Saul was from? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So Jonah goes, and all the, we know what happens. He's on this boat. There's a storm. He, he jumps off the boat, and a fish eats him. And he's in this fish for how many days? Does anyone happen to know offhand how many days Paul was blinded? Does anyone happen to know how many days that girl was dead before Peter brought her back to life? It's weird. Okay, so let me see if I got this straight. After Jonah's in the belly of this fish for three days, he spit out and he goes and does what God told him to do. He goes to the Gentiles, he preaches to them, and they listen. After Paul was blind for three days, he goes, he preaches, and they listen to him. After this girl was dead for three days, Peter goes to her, he says, arise, she listens to him. This is getting a little freaky. Jonah got on a boat in Joppa to sail to Tarsus to avoid the Gentiles. He spent three days in the fish while God changed his heart. Peter saw a vision about ministering to the Gentiles in Joppa, and Paul, from Tarsus, after being blinded for three days, became the fulfillment of that vision. God is trying to tell us something. 
He's trying to tell us something. And for people like me, who love foreshadowing, who love imagery, who love letting an author kind of peel back the story, this smacks me in the face like two shotgun barrels right into my eyes. I cannot avoid seeing this truth. And it's one of the reasons why I was so excited to preach today, because I want you guys to see this with me. Paul, Peter, and Jonah's intentions were all about following the law. And there's nothing wrong with following the law. The longest psalm in the entire book of Psalms is a love poem about the law. The law is good. The law is wonderful. When we follow the law, we have a great life. God told Joshua to write the law on his eyelids so that he would see it all the time. The law is good. But if you're open to it, and sometimes even if you're not, God will break down everything in your life, good or bad, that gets in the way of his will. There's a saying that literature nerds know, and it goes like this. You're not allowed to break the rules until you love the rules. You're not allowed to break the rules until you love the rules. A lot of times you'll see authors use punctuation for their own purposes, completely contrary to the rules, the proper punctuation. There's a man named E.E. Cummings. He's a poet a long time ago. He used to write weird, crazy poems that just had like 13 semicolons in a row and then a bunch of commas and then a word and then an exclamation point and then a bunch of spaces and then like a dash and just insanity. Just absolute craziness. Pretty cool stuff, but just crazy. The thing about E.E. E. Cummings is if you read any of his extremely early stuff, he knows the punctuation, the grammar rules by heart. It's perfect, absolutely wonderful stuff. He loved the rules, and so he knew how to break them to be effective. Jesus was the exact same way. You can't tell me that Jesus did not love the law. He was the law. He was the fulfillment of the law. Jesus loved the law, but yet he grabbed the hand of a dead girl before he brought her back to life. That's against the law. He told people to pick up their mats and walk on the Sabbath, which was against the law. He constantly broke these laws to fulfill the will of God. The law is not for you. The law is for God. And the Christian life is not about avoiding sin. The Christian life is about pleasing God. It is not about avoiding sin. It is about pleasing God and surrendering completely to his will. Whatever it is he would have you do, that is what it is about. There's a man who was alive in the early 1900s. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And yes, youth, I am going to talk about him. They're probably getting tired of it because I keep bringing him up. I can't help it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany in the 30s and 40s. And if you have not been living under a rock, you probably know that Germany in the 30s and 40s was a little bit of a tumultuous time. They had, you know, this socialist Republic led by this crazy dude named Adolf Hitler. 
and he was causing a little bit of a problem in Germany. So much so that a group of people got together and said, hey, we should off this dude. We should probably murder him because he's ruining not only our life, but the world. We should probably get rid of this guy. Now, any pastor who hears that idea normally would say, I neither bless thee nor condemn thee, but let God's will be right for your life. They would take some sort of gray area backseat and just say, I'm not going to tell you that's good or bad, but I am going to say I'm not doing it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was quoted as saying, if I have to pull the trigger, I'll do it. He was a part of a conspiracy to take out Adolf Hitler. They had three failed attempts, one of which happened after he was already arrested. While they did not succeed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was broken down to the point where he understood that murder and deception was part of God's will for his life. Murder and deception. That was right. That was the right thing to do. That sounds insane. And in relatively peaceful times that we are in, it still kind of sounds crazy. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man that loved God with all his heart. He knew that his absolute and complete existence in life was to follow his will. And the will of God for his life was to try to kill a man. If you're open to it, and sometimes even if you're not, God will break down everything in your life, good or bad, that gets in the way of his will. Nothing is off the table. Everything is available to be taken by God to be used for his purposes. There's a story that Jesus tells where a man comes to him and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, all right, let's go. And the guy's like, wait, but first I need to go bury my father. And Jesus rejects him and says, no, let the dead bury their dead. I'm out. Another man just says, God, I want to, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he's like, great. And he's like, but first I need to go say goodbye to my family. Just want to give him a quick wave. And Jesus says, no. You cannot push a plowshare and look back. That doesn't work. Let the past be the past. Let's move on. Your love of your family, your love of yourself, your love of money, your love of your house, your desire to take care of any of those things, all of them are on the table. I'm not telling you that God is going to force all of you to hate your family. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, hold on to nothing tightly. Because that little catch inside that phrase, even if sometimes you're not, means that occasionally God will have to rip from you those things that you love if you hold on too tightly. And God's grip is much stronger than yours. God will not allow you to get in the way of his will. I'm going to close with this. If you're open to it, and sometimes even if you're not, God will break down everything in your life, good or bad, that gets in the way 
of his will. You are either in the way or part of the way. And I apologize if this rhymes, but let us pray. (laughs) God, there is no one like you. There is no one who holds us like you do. There is no one who loves us the way that you do. You are God and we are your people. And God, in this room right now, there are many of us holding tightly to things in our lives. There are many of us holding tightly saying, God, you may have all of me, but let me keep this. God, use me for your purposes, but I've got to do this. God, take me, make me, remake me, reshape me, break me down and build me up except for this. Leave that alone. God, let that not be so for us as we leave this place, but loosen our grip. Reach into our hearts. Soften us. And prepare us for whatever it is you have called us to do. God, I pray that in each and every heart in this room, you do a work that is new and different and powerful and mighty and life-changing. That we might be, as Allison called us all, world changers. God, we know that nothing is off the table for you, that you own us, we are yours, it is your very breath that we breathe even now. So God, I pray for myself, take all of me, take all of me and use all of me for your purposes. Let nothing that I do, think, or believe get in the way of what it is you have for me. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.